It's said that Hermes, messenger of the gods, instructed primitive peoples in the arts and sciences of culture, giving birth to humanity as we now know it. From the Hermetic perspective, everything is connected by core principles that are seamlessly woven into the holographic and fractal nature of reality. My job is to expose those hermetic principles to modern people and to inspire an alchemical renaissance so we can collectively integrate them with terrestrial arts and sciences for a more beautiful and sustainable human experience. My name is Phoenix Aurelius. I'm the founder of Alchemiculture, which is a perennial philosophy that incorporates hermetic and alchemical principles into every aspect of human culture, the arts, the sciences, and our relationship with nature and natural resources. Join me as we actively weave Hermeticism back into our social fabric. Hi there, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this uh, episode of the Alchemiculture Podcast. I'm your host, Phoenix Aurelius, and today I am joined by one of my very best friends, as well as a colleague of mine and one of the most interesting people I have ever met. I know that we have a lot of interesting people on the show, but if she's not one of the most interesting that you have ever met, if not the most interesting, um, you need to write me because I need to know who you know. At any rate, I would like to welcome to this show the fantastic Aubrey Bomdod. Aubrey, how are you doing today? I'm absolutely um, honored to be here. And what an, what an outstandingly um, glorious introduction, <laughs> Phoenix. I don't even know what to say. I'm absolutely beyond words, but thank you so much. I'm so happy to sit here and talk to you. You know, I would consider you amongst my best friends as well. And it's just been way too long since we've gotten together. So I'm really excited about what we're going to jam on here today i know me too well and there's yeah. so much i mean so much you know, we have so much overlap in our interests but you are also doing so many things that like i think we could have you back for 20 episodes and we would still be covering new information so before before we I get into that. anything, yeah me too before we get into anything though let me just go ahead and fill uh the listeners in on how we met aubrey uh 2014 contacted me and said hey phoenix i'm looking for somebody to come down to amazon and teach me how to do alchemy at the time you were running corianti amazonian herbals and you said go ahead and come down and teach me uh how to do this and we ended up working things out we were there for 40 days there was some very awesome high points you were like eight months pregnant at the time and and I got to work with you and your husband Dionisio in such close proximity and got to see you at some of your highest highs and lowest lows during that time. And I think that, I mean, we just bonded indelibly during that time. It was such a beautiful, beautiful experience. So I enjoyed doing that. But I mean, hell, at that time, you also had so much going on. I remember that uh, in your emails, you had written me and said, like, hey, basically, I'm an Ayurvedic practitioner, and a huge part of my goal with Corianti Herbals is to be able to work with all of this Amazonian biodiversity and classify it under Ayurvedic uh, kind of terms, you know, like, what, what does it do? Does it balance this, this dosha, that dosha, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And um, ever since then, I mean, you have turned the Yakumaman uh, Sanctuary of Integral Shamanism into also, like, uh, I can't I can't call it like a wilderness rehabilitation project, but you're actually keeping animals on the site. You since that time, you have also obviously had in a hall and started uh, doing the sacred motherhood uh, blueprint. 
you have also started the mystery field school and the alchemic mysteries. I mean, the amount of things that you do and have done are just crazy. Have I missed anything that you're currently doing that I, we should talk about? And if so, please fill us in. Thank you so much, Phoenix. I so appreciate that you, I mean, honestly, the fact that you appreciate my work is, is so, um, it just turns me on so much because I just love what you do. And I mean, there's few people, you know, unfortunately, there's not a lot of people out there that are really oriented towards curating and creating a body of work, a corpus that is original. And you are one of those people and you have been so dedicated and so focused on your work to bring alchemy into um, the Western modernist interpreted mindset. Um, it's and, and you've you've done it brilliantly. And so the fact that you appreciate what I've been doing and, and how you just kind of succinctly integrated all of these different um, corpi of works that I've been working on over the last 20 years. Thank you so much for that introduction. Um, where would you like me to start? You know, there's something actually that I thought about when you were speaking about the time that you were down here for 40 days, which is highly auspicious number, right? right. I do a lot of 40 day works. I lead a lot of 40 day works with people because 40 is a, you know, it is the number of, you know, gestation and uh, it's a very significant spiritual amount of time uh, to devote to something. And so during that period of time, as you mentioned, high highs, low lows, you know, you initiated me into alchemical lab work in Spigeria, um, which I'll never forget. I mean, that's definitely a high point of my life, especially as a clinical herbalist and a vehicleista, which is a, you know, a traditional shamanic herbalist. So I have like those both aspects, like the clinician and also the, the shaman that yeah. I've woven together in my approach to working with plants. So like learning Spigeria has been something really important to me in that pathway. Um, and while, as you know, while you were down there, my father passed away unexpectedly. And it's funny because it's not funny that he passed away unexpectedly. That was, that was probably one of the most difficult passages that I've uh, navigated in this life. However, um, what just kind of came to my mind when I was listening to you just now is the day that that happened, we were working in the lab. And, you know, as you said, I was, I was, I think, 37 weeks pregnant at that point in time. And I had a very active pregnancy. Dionisio and I uh, led retreats, like in numerous places in the world. And, you know, a lot of like ceremonial work and all of the stuff, you know, very active yoga practice every day, all this stuff. And I had started to feel like I was slowing down at that point, you know, and we were really like having some long days in the lab. And so I came back and I was going to prepare some food. And I, I don't know if I ever told you this because I was in such serious trauma mode at that moment. We may have never had this conversation. Enormous shock. Yeah. It was huge. Right. And so I dropped a pot on my toe, right. With my like big pregnant belly, I dropped a huge pot on my toe. And as soon as that happened, the phone rang and it was the phone in the office, which never rings. We don't, we don't even have it anymore because it never rang. And Dionisio picked it up and I heard him speaking in English and that doesn't happen because yeah. we live in Peru. And so if anyone's going to call the local line, they'll speak in Spanish. And I didn't hear the conversation, but just hearing him speak on English in English on the phone immediately, I knew something happened. I knew someone died in this moment. And in fact, I thought, that he was talking to one of my best friends and that her husband died now let me just tell you something he was one of my best friends he died two years later but at this point in time he was not ill 
So the reason I mentioned this is because when you just brought that up, that just connected for me the fact that like something that's been happening for me, Phoenix, over the last, um, I would say probably since 2017. And if you're interested, I'm happy to talk a little bit about the experience that like kicked this off. Um, is about um, it's really the impetus for starting the mystery field school work, which is discovering my own latent abilities to divine as an oracle. And this is something that has been so fascinating to me. And like you, one of the points that we absolutely are brethren on in this lifetime and beyond is that when something fascinates us, we go deep into that and the exploration of that. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, I'm so grateful for that, you know, like voracious consuming of whatever that subject matter is, you know, it's like beyond being an investigator. It's just, it's an, it's another, it's yes. another level. It, of it's borderline unhealthy obsession. <laughs> <laughs> it can be, but there's other, uh, there's other obsessions that are, that are worse for the mind oh, and yeah, body than completely. sitting in like voraciously consuming volumes of stuff, you know? Yes. And, so, <laughs> and so it was like, when you just mentioned like the, these high highs, low lows, and your experience in this 40 days. And when I think about it, that was like one of the first times in my adult life, because as a child, there were a lot of experiences like this that I really kind of shoved down because I didn't understand them or have any context or anyone to help me to understand these things. But it was it was one of those experiences where I started to um, tap into like my clairsentient and claircognizant abilities where they were coming to the surface and telekinetic abilities too. This is also something that I've noticed. I don't know. I'd love to hear from you if you have any experience with telekinesis, but like I've noticed, especially when I'm around like the death portal and I'll call it a portal because my experience being around a being that is transitioning from this plane is it becomes a kind of vortex portal mm -hmm. and for me personally the only thing that i can possibly compare it to this is going to sound totally far out there and i love that you're giving me the opportunity to talk about these things because oh, yes. i, I don't platform. thank you <laughs> i love it i'm gonna run with it so it reminds me of the of the movie lord of the rings when someone puts the ring on when either Frodo or Gollum or whoever puts the ring on and everything takes on this kind of like altered yes. state of consciousness, it's wavy, it's neither this nor that. I mean, it's very beautifully portrayed cinematographically, uh, but this is what happens to me personally when I get near someone that is passing. And the thing is, because as you mentioned, we have an animal sanctuary here on the property, I've actually been around a number of beings who animal beings that have been passing on from this realm. And what I've noticed is that it activates when I'm in this space where I'm holding space and dueling for a being that is passing and literally um, telepathically communicating with this being as they're making the transition, literally communicating with them and helping to establish and guide them through this journey, it activates something telekinetically. And this is like, <laughs> just a few months ago, we had our very old, very dear house cat pass away, like 16 oh. years, you know, she's like my first animal in the Amazon of hundreds of animals of countless species that I have had the absolute 
pleasure of stewarding during my time here, right? She's the first one. So she just passed and uh-huh. she was very old and it was her time and it was beautiful. But it like, it got so crazy that when I went into my kitchen during the day, literally I'd like pick up a spoon and it would like shoot out of my hand and everything I touched, like, like I would touch a glass, it would shatter into a million pieces. Like I had this like huge thing of colostrum, it flew out of my hand and there was like white powder everywhere. And so I've noticed like, oh wow, this is a really interesting thing where I hadn't, I didn't even know. I had to like research and be like, what, what's going on? Like, why does that happen when I get into a certain state that like I'll touch something and it shatters or it breaks? Like, what's that? And then I was like, oh, that's, that's telekinesis you know so i'm curious like do you, <laughs> you know that's hilarious the way that you said that reminds me of a tenacious d song where jack black goes that's telekinesis kyle anyway the way that you, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. rebecca when you edit this you may want to put that in um at any rate uh so yeah so what's my experience with telekinesis i have three yeah. Three things that came to mind while you were talking about that. First was that, um, and this was my, so I've been thinking and like knowing, I guess I should say, from a very, very young age, I think I was probably like somewhere between the window of nine to 12. Uh, Some of those years kind of blurred together for me. But I remember thinking like, okay, I know that I can move something. I just have to acknowledge that I am that thing and step out of myself enough to be able to create the movement there, but still enough of myself that I don't just like pass out or go unconscious. So I remember having a really deep sense of knowing about that, but I didn't have any definitive experiences where I was ever able to elicit a telekinetic effect um, until... This was, uh, I think, January of 20, no, sorry, uh, November of 2015 or 16. I was living in Portland at the time. I think it was 2016, though. And it was, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but it was astronomical Samhain. So it's, you know, exactly halfway uh, between the uh, the autumnal equinox and, and winter solstice. And I was sitting on my bed and I was looking at a curtain rod and I could feel this definitive shift happen for just a split second. And Nori was sitting on the bed next to me. And I said, Nori, the veil is so thin right now. Like I can just reach like this. And I feel like I can move that curtain as I did that, that curtain moved exactly the same pattern as my hand did. And I, we both looked at each other and she's like, can you do that again? I tried. And you know, I was kind of in a bit of an emotional, excited state. And I was like, no, I can't do that. But I went and I looked and I found out that that was cross-quarter astronomical Samhain. And it happened at that very moment. That was the exact moment that it was switching. And I just thought, what are the chances of that? That is absolutely crazy because, you know, the, the term the veil thinning is a relatively new term. Like my ancient Celtic ancestors would not have used that same term, but they knew that the other world and this world 
were coincided two dimensional realities kind of overlap very heavily at that time and again at astronomical Beltane or Beltane for most people so with that being said um that was my first experience and that was really kind of crazy the second thing was is that for a while Nori and I both trained in a very unique and privileged martial arts system that originates in Indonesia called Merpati Puti and it is a Pinchak Silat style, but it um, at the time, it was only taught in Indonesia to Kopassus, which are their Indonesian special forces, as well as um, here in the United States because of two brothers, here in Utah, actually, because of two brothers that wow. were so dedicated to developing their Jedi nature that they found it, you know, 20 years in the past, and then studied with all of the guys and got permission to come and teach the school and so right here in Ogden Utah was the only place beside in Indonesia that you could study Merpati Puti which is the Royal Indonesian martial art and energetic style that was developed for a princess 14 generations ago to be able to uphold the kingdom should she need to on her own and in that they teach uh how to be able to see without your eyes or without any visual cortices whatsoever of the brain. And so you're picking up on uh, vibration and energy. Uh, in English, we call that vibravision. And the Kopasus actually still use this instead of night vision goggles and other technology because it's infinitely more reliable. And night vision goggles can't help you find people in mudslides or volcanoes, uh, whereas they can detect them, find them, dozens of feet sometimes under the ground under these huge mudslides or volcanoes and other things and they teach us as part of that martial arts system an energetic method that is largely based in they don't call it this but we would call it essentially a pranayama uh, style of thing in order to change your entire magnetic um charge and to be able to push things away and repel them and in order to break through things and so like our teachers moss mike and moss nate they, we have like these cast iron pump handles. And uh, I think he broke through 20 of those at one time. Um, and, you know, you can see him, there's there's all sorts of videos of him just being able to take like belts or like a newspaper and break solid steel and, you know, bricks and all these other things. And if I didn't study it and learn that method and be able to do the same things myself, I would still be a little skeptical of like, oh, are those like, are there fractures in those handles? Like what's going, but no, like it, it's an actual legitimate thing. And the most unsuspecting people, hundreds of us from Ogden and even people who travel up from Salt Lake too, but hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of us over the last 17 years have learned those techniques and a lot more how to be able to use magnetic healing of that tradition, lots of other things. And a huge portion of that is changing the magnetic signature of the body by training it to run on carbon rather than oxygen. That changes, that creates a different magnetic switch. And then we can utilize various principles of telekinesis. I would not call myself in any way, shape or form a master of this. It is something I have experience with and I, I have used it, but uh, that's, that's pretty much the extent of it is for breaking uh tiles and and different objects like that uh is the extent of my own experience but i have friends and colleagues and of course moss mike and moss nate um of that tradition are able to do impeccable and crazy crazy things that blow most people's minds and all of that's available on youtube for people who are interested their their company is called mpay or mp the letter mp usa 
and uh, you can see that in Viper Vision type of stuff. Um, but I, I'm very honored to be a part of that tradition. So those are kind of the three different instances around telekinesis that, that come to mind for me, but I have never had a jar of colostrum fly out of my hands or spoons fly across the room. Um, but do you think that maybe it has something to do also, you know, one thing that Jim Self taught me many, many years ago is that thoughts are electric and emotions are magnetic. And in that state of That's high emotionality, relating to the, you know the death doula or that space of holding space for somebody dying there's a sense even if you don't take it on yourself a sense of overcoming grief right uh and and also a joy to it as well you know a beauty of the passing and this sadness of leaving this world or us being left without this being this this individual do you think that maybe there is any sort of emotional charge that plays a part in all of that? Oh, goodness, Phoenix. I mean, there's so much to unpack with what you're saying. First of all, like, I, I can't even believe that you have the opportunity to um, study these kind of things in Ogden. I mean, that's just incredibly fortunate. Like, what good fortune. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of things that have come to mind listening to you. But to address your question, um, it's hard to say because, you know, nothing exists in a vacuum, right? And so everything is interconnected. So it's really hard to quantify when you're dealing with these quantum kind of fields, it's hard to quantify in a material way, you know, and compartmentalize like what's coming from what. And as you and I both know, because another point that I feel like we absolutely are so aligned on is um, utilizing our philosophic nature to contemplate the root cause of disease, of imbalance of where does that arise from in an individual you know i know that is something that is extremely um like a north star guiding point in your life because it is for me also as a clinician it's where i operate from because if you're not operating from that point then what are you doing exactly like maybe you're yeah. trying to you know alleviate symptoms but you know yeah, you're otherwise... practicing allopathy naturally <laughs> exactly yeah. right so i think that it's always a confluence of factors that exist on multiple uh, layers, you know, like from mm -hmm. a causal layer to a more material physical layer. And again, like when you're talking about like the thinning of the veils, it's like those different nested layers of beingness, they um, interface with each other in different kinds of ways like sometimes the causal body is much more detached from the physical body and sometimes it's not sometimes the causal body is operating through the physical body in a very very visceral and palpable way so it's hard to answer your question with any degree of certainty but i can tell you you know personally i did not feel grief i was actually you know, I, I knew my cat had been passing and trying to pass for like months. And so I was very attuned to her process of dying. And so I was um, simply just holding space for her. But I think when any being leaves this dimension, it's so massive, you know, it really is a portal opening. It's almost yeah. like there's a small rupture in the space time continuum, you know, where you're seeing, feeling, things through these different layers, you know, in a very visceral kind of way. So I'm not sure, but a couple of things that came to mind when I was just listening to you talk about your experience with the style of martial arts is one, you know, as an investigator of say ESP and of um, the nature of oraculorship, 
you know, that's, I actually taught a year long mystery school last year into the nature of divination and oracularship. And my students had to choose a method of divination that they were going to study in great depth. And we were studying what, you know, what are the qualitative nature of an oracle? And like, I really delved into this historically and looked at the different, you know, prominent oracles uh, um, across history. We actually took a pilgrimage out into the Western desert of Egypt after 12 lunations of study virtually, where we went to the temple of Amun, which is on the Libyan border in Egypt, way out there. And it's a very interesting place because it was a site of an oracle in ancient times. And in fact, Alexander the Great, you know, basically attributes a lot of his, um, you know, he considered himself to be a divine emanation, essentially. He considered himself to be an avatar. I don't know how familiar you are, but I mean, there's something to be said for people with that level of conviction. It's true. And connection to the divine and what they're able to accomplish, you know? So um, what's interesting about that is when we see the resurgence of these kinds of latent abilities, which I personally believe that every single one of us is equipped with different um, ESP tendencies, different, you know, extra uh, sensory perception. Some of us are more like some of us hear things more. Some of us see things more. Some of us feel things more, you know, but it's an end like any kind of skill. You know, some people might have that skill a little bit more developed than the next person, but it is a muscle that can be toned. Right. And so that's the thing. I know you do. And so that's the thing is like, that's what really fascinates me is what is how do we tone those things and i think both of us know like you're talking about this like elite style of royal martial arts where they're literally toning those kinds of extrasensory perceptive skill sets or even i don't know if you're aware of this i'm sure you are you know the cia has you know a few years ago issued a declassified document on like right. astral projection right and so it's just like there's a lot of the population that is still kind of like wondering if this exists you know if this I is know, real. yeah speculative <laughs> it's like no nah, it does it's a lot there's i a assure lot of, you there's a lot of very interesting in you know case study information out there and even about um like past lives and people that incarnate and like have a very full-on memory about their past life i mean there's a lot of documented case studies on all this stuff for people that are interested in following through and and learning more so to to just dismiss this is to just be like okay i'm really happy with my you know third dimensional material level perception of reality and i'm good with that and like that's cool like if that's where you're at like that's great i'm not trying to convince anybody of anything but for people who are feeling things a little bit more multidimensionally, there is really a plethora of information at this point in time to be able to delve into. We're living in a really um, like a renaissance of information age. The problem, the problem is we need to figure, we need to have, like we were talking before, critical thinking and discernment in place to be able to weed through all the misinformation that's out there, right? So that was one thing. And then the other thing I thought about with the telekinesis point is Egypt. For me, Phoenix, all roads lead to Egypt. <laughs> no, the, the fact is, is that, you know, if you go back far enough in the histories, all roads do go to Egypt. And then if you go back before that, you know, you're basically getting into Mesopotamia. So, you know, or Atl- I was, I was going to say Atlantis. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. You go back behind Mesopotamia, <laughs> then you're getting to Atlantis. But, you know, that's what's, that's, what's really interesting because, um, 
there are according according to themselves they're like the people of the falcon really the the egyptian gods that made their way from a foreign land that basically had some sort of climate thing whether we want to tie this into the greek histories of atlantis or not um there they had some sort of climate thing happen ended up making their way to egypt as i understand it and this they're very very tall people and they end up teaching the native inhabitants of that area how to be civilized individuals over a vast period of time is that your same understanding on all of this yes we have a name for that in chemitology we call it shemsu hor the followers of horus and essentially that's what you're describing the people of the falcon that carried uh technology um, that was spiritual and also um, Aquarian in nature, you know, and really what I think is so um, fascinating because you see these ancient civilizations that have these uh, like remnants, whether it's in like monuments or megalithic structures or, you know, the crystal skulls from Mexico or whatever it is where you're finding these objects and these places and temples and and evidence of like engineering feats and technology that we don't have the ability yeah. to recreate today. And basically it's alluding to the fact that there was a kind of like um, mother race at a point in time, which I don't believe there was one mother race. I mean, I really believe that there were like iterations because I think humanity yeah. gets so far away from their spiritual heart and their heart-centered intelligence that it destroys itself and we've probably done this on several you know Occasions, several iterations yeah. you know but we've somehow managed to kind of come back but we always come back and we don't remember we somehow have like lost amnesia knowledge. you know collective amnesia right we've lost knowledge of our previous um history of ourselves and like how long these timelines go and so the Shamsuhur, there's a lot of legends in um, Kemetian lore that talk about that these were the followers of Horus. So there's two there's two groups. There's the Shamsu-Ra and the Shamsuhur. And the Shamsuhur are the followers of Horus, and the Shamsu-Ra are the followers of Ra. Um, so, you know, it's because we're talking about a historical record in which there is no actual, like, text that has survived, you know, because conveniently, like, um, dominator cultures know to destroy uh, cultural archives. And that's something that we have seemed to remember through our various iterations, like whether it's the Library of Alexandria or um, the cultural archives in Gaza City were destroyed just recently. Um, yeah, so that's something that we, uh, there are these kind of shadow aspects of humanity that don't want us to remember our um, our lineages and yeah. our, our our real history beyond this kind of convention conventional fabricated timeline that we've all been indoctrinated to right so in any case one of the things in egypt so we're talking about telekinesis to kind of like round out this topic on telekinesis there is a place in um ancient memphis it's called saqqara and Saqqara is where supposedly like the original pyramids were built, like the prototypes before you get to the Giza Plateau. That's not my current, that's not my current understanding of things, my okay. current understanding of things. And we can get into this in another moment, but the Great Pyramid of Giza for me is the template for every other pyramidal structure all over the planet, including the you know over a hundred pyramid um pyramids that are found in egypt and so it 
it is the most perfected engineering design. Um, it's definitely a decommissioned kind of uh, device, I would call it. It's a device. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, yeah. It's, yeah. It's something that I'm still in the process of trying to understand what it is and what it does because it's multifunctional. But in any case, that was the original and that the, the pyramids in Saqqara were built later. And a lot of what was built later did not arrive to the, le the technological level that the original arrived to, which is why the timeline is all funky in Egypt because we have a very like progressionist, we're indoctrinated yeah. with a very progressionist view of history, which means that like, over time things get better right and so we're at like the zenith of our like spiritual technological cultural innovative kind of development when we know that that's that's not the way things go that if there is a kind of ebb and flow and that we have lost access to technologies that were perhaps way more advanced so again shemsuhor for me like whether they came from atlantis whether the atlanteans were descendants of lemurians like whatever whether the lemurians were descendants of different like star races um for me they were people that had a much greater integration of heart and mind and operated from that place which gave them access to technologies and engineering and um all kinds of different uh you know architectural abilities and writing you know because for me yeah. like hieroglyphs like it's a multi-dimensional language like it's a spiritual language that teaches on the level of the the aperture of the consciousness of the initiate that is exposed to it that's high it, that's high tech stuff right it really and is so, yes and so they they had this more integrated um uh operational system in place as a, as a collective. And for me, it's that lack of the integration of the mind and the heart, the intellect and the, um, the, in, the intuition that has been the downfall and demise of humanity time and time again throughout our, you know, our true historical timeline. So this place in Saqqara, it is an under Phoenix, Phoenix before you hang up your traveling cloak, please, <laughs> come with me one day here actually i will i will I, that's must. something i need to do and in fact you know you've been trying to get me for a couple of years and saying hey fee this is really important in the last year it's become a lot more important to me largely because um our lab hand who doesn't really work here anymore occasionally he does he's going to be moving soon but he is an amateur egyptologist and he went at a very young age i think he was 21 or something and traveled uh, through egypt for an exceptionally long time and he was showing me and telling me about a lot of things and of course um, being into cuneiform and Mesopotamian stuff and then seeing the, you know, uh, and being enormously into the Celtic traditions of Northern France and, uh, and the, you know, England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, uh, and, and other different places as well that have megalithic structures. You don't see all of it as well recorded still or that we know as much about it as we do with Egypt. And I feel like it is something, like you said, all roads lead to Egypt. It's something that I really need to get a grasp on and really understand before um, I can put together a lot of the other pieces of the puzzle. I, I, I just get this innate sense that if I can understand the astronomical and astrological components of what was happening in Egypt in particular, I can help piece together how to be able to utilize that information in the modern age 
for us to be able to reground in and to create the proper spiritual link that is supposed to happen between the heaven and earth. And that's a huge, huge goal of mine. And I think that you just have a big piece of the puzzle that I need to learn. So you, you just thank you. You just reminded me of something. So just to kind of finish this point about Sakar and these underground galleries, because I, I do want to speak to what and and believe me, my um, knowledge of Egyptian, ancient Egyptian astronomy and astrology is extremely limited and extremely basic. However, I do want to share something with you that I have observed. But um, so this underground gallery, it's got like these, the only way I can kind of describe it is it's like car parts. There's no hieroglyphs. There's no bas-reliefs. It's just cut into bedrock, into pure limestone under the ground. And these car ports have like these megalithic boxes in them they're called sarcophagi but i'm very reticent to use the word sarcophagus because sarcophagus implies that that was a funerary box that was right. used to house a dead person and these were not that they were other kinds of maybe like incubators um piezoelectric piezoelectric incubators for something perhaps you know um so they're made out of rose granite, which first of all doesn't come and it's like 700 miles away, the quarry for rose granite. Okay, and so it's a very wow. particular kind of stone that is used to create these boxes that have what are it looks like laser cuts. They're enormous. They have to weigh like almost a thousand tons each one. They're hermetically sealed and they're like the thing is, how did they get them in there? Right. And so that is something of great fascination to me because and a lot of what I've seen with the megalithic architecture, not all of it, because when you get into Ptolemaic like uh, dynastic uh, architectural uh, designs, which are gorgeous, you know, the Temple of Horus at Edfu is gorgeous, the Temple of Dundada is gorgeous, but these are much later iterations yeah, of original yeah. temple designs and they don't have the same kind of architectural um, anomalies, right? Like where you get these huge blocks that are like perfectly cut and perfectly like, um, perfectly placed together without any kind of like mortar, you know, or cement ah. or anything like that, where there's, you can't even fit like a piece of paper or a card through them. They're just absolutely perfect. And this is what, what presumably 10,000 plus years later? Absolutely. That Absolutely. And so the point is, is that I've thought a lot about this and there's other researchers that have taken this to much greater degree of exploration, which is about the use of sound technology and being able to alter the atomic structure of something in terms of density, volume, weight. Because for me, that's really the only thing that actually adds up to anything worth exploring is if you're willing to consider possibilities outside the box of conventionality and challenge our perceptions like for example like if we as humans had access to technology that you know using sound which for example i know you know tibetan lamas have been able to do certain things like vibrate certain sounds and levitate you know huge stones and like kind of send them through space so i mean this is not shot out of my bum this is something yeah. that you know we just have to we have to look a little bit deeper and so if we were able to alter the structure the atomic structure of something um you know so and again you know piezoelectricity is a very interesting 
field of study because I think it's a piece. It's a piece of a bigger puzzle. And if we, it's, it's kind of like the crop circle phenomenon. Like if you want to understand these things, we need to bring together like a plethora of researchers that have expertise in so many different fields because there's no one way that we're going to figure out and un, un, break this code. It's like, we have to look at all of these different fields and see how they fit together. Because I think ancient, ancient people had a much more multi-dimensional kind of not just worldview, but understanding of the nature of reality itself. And that is something, Phoenix, that when I try to bring people into perceiving through the cosmology of the ancient Egyptian, that because in order to understand what was going on in ancient Egypt, we have to get out of our Cartesian material reductionist worldview. Otherwise, yes. we're just going to look at these people and be like, the like they're if we want to go back any death. further than like the industrial revolution you have to break out of that correct and and so to be able to like and, and psychedelics can really help with that <laughs> they, i have to admit like, <laughs> thank they, you for they, letting me say that <laughs> they kind of open the gateway a lot of times i mean not that you have to do it through that way it's like maharishi mahesh yogi right beatles give him acid and he says oh very great have you tried meditation <laughs> you know it's totally. like it's that very basic concept is like, oh my God, there are millions of different ways of doing it. But the psychedelics for a lot of individuals have served, including myself, have served that role to be able to uh, open me up to information and ways of looking at things and cosmologies that otherwise I was very, very much so not even open to considering because it sounded too outlandish, but it, it opens, it literally changes neurology and opens up a greater Half use ways. of the brain. Agreed. So, Agreed completely. Perhaps you've heard Phoenix speak about alchemy and spagyria, and you yourself want to start practicing? Phoenix has been engaged in more than 15 years of consistent split tests in order to find the most practical and standardized methods to create the highest quality items of spagyric pharmacopoeia possible. He provides the most detailed multimedia courses in existence, walking you through every aspect of Spagyria, including beginning theory, setting up your lab, proper technique, important details on how to make a Spagyric like a pro, tips for advanced practice, alchemical and hermetic applications, astrological theory, and so much more. In any of his online courses, you will be thoroughly guided through making your own items of Spagyric Pharmacopoeia including spagyric tinctures, spagyric elixirs, spagyric essences, spagyric stones, and so much more. You will be able to set up your own laboratory in your home or business and craft up your very own alchemical apothecary in no time flat. To learn more about our online courses, simply visit www.phoenixaurelius.org forward slash online courses and begin your spagyric journey today. And as an Alchemiculture podcast listener, you get to save 15% off the tuition of any course by entering the coupon code TEACHME15 at checkout. Again, that is coupon code TEACHME15, which will save you a whole 15% off any of Phoenix's online courses. As always, all proceeds go towards supporting this podcast and furthering our research.
you know, just to kind of touch on uh, what you were saying about astronomical astrological influences, because I know this is something that is of huge importance in your body of work. Um, so a lot of times what you see is alignment and you don't just see this in Egypt, but, you know, Egypt is really where I like to hang out and study these things. Um, you see alignment of temples and uh, complexes and specific chambers within temples aligned directionally right yes. you see this a lot so for example like the great pyramid i was referring to which is in my opinion like the template for all the pyramidal um structures on the planet um it has a chamber called the king's chamber which is accessible to the public and it's got these two with what are called air shafts in them and um the thing about this is when you and it comes in at like a crazy angle through into the king's chamber right i was just going to say that so like when you consider and take into account the engineering that when they were building this pyramidal structure and how these two shafts are coming in like this like how they needed to count and they're at very specific angular degrees of angulature that are very significant sometimes they're at like the same degree of angulature of the like tilt of the earth or something like that right, right? and so you know just to be able to like purely create that and the fact that um it has nothing to do with bringing in air and everything to do with bringing in light and specifically the light that's emitted from specific planets and stars at specific times so what i have understood um through my penetration of the uh the curriculums of the ancient egyptian mystery schools is that the Egyptians saw everything as like bodies within bodies, like nested yes. Russian doll effect, right? And we know this too from looking at the Vedas and looking at like Tibetan um, spiritual uh, architecture or anatomy is that, you know, you have these different layers that go from the most subtle to the most dense. And so they looked at not just the physical body like that, but everything in nature like that, including the planets and that the planets and the stars emitted very specific kinds of informational frequencies and they were fascinated with how those frequencies would affect the consciousness of an individual that was prepared prepared in very specific ways through initiatic experience or certain kinds of techniques and practices that were only available to like certain members of like the priestesshoods or the priesthoods and yes. so yes and so being able to take in that information through light through the ocular um the ocular glands was something that affected not just like the endocrine system but also like activated the consciousness and were in elicited certain experiences basically we could say that yeah totally yeah well and see it's that that very same thing so you know i've been studying Irish archaeology and anthropology since I was old enough to read, basically. And, you know, when we take a look at all of the many complexes of Bruna Boyne, or, uh, Newgrange, and we ah, take a look yeah. at, you know, especially Have when you we been? Look at the Have you old... been to Newgrange? No, I've never been to Ireland at all, but I, I will be going in 2025. I've, I've been to Canada and Peru, okay? Like, I don't, I'm relentlessly provincial. But that being said, 
I have studied these things to such an intimate degree. I'm very good friends with a lot of the greatest researchers on these topics just because, you know, I reach out to them. To me, there's no barrier. If I'm interested in something and can kind of jive at the level they can, I just reach out to them and see what happens. And so one of the things that uh, we share in common. So I have become very good friends and have an enormous corpus of of, uh, study put behind all of this. And I have noticed that there are similarities between every megalithic and or monolithic structure in its alignment to something. And that these somethings are not just random, but are actually completely put there in order to ground, as far as I can tell, cosmic forces into the planet for the health and well-being and stability of the planet. As well as the development. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, and mm-hmm. if you take a look at any of the ancient cultures, hell, if we even take a look at Paracelsus writings and why Paracelsus has been so cherry picked was that he felt that spirituality and physicality were coexisting dimensions and that they needed like everything had a spiritual source because that was its highest most subtle form of vibration from what he perceived to be god down into physical creation and that you know this is where the concept of spagyric animism really was born with paracelsus was the concept that everything is imbued with the spirit something that the catholic church had this huge problem with but he ended up, you know, elaborating on this and every ancient culture elaborates on this. And we can see very particular and unique relations with the cosmos and uh, the alignments of these things that can be used for healing and for, like you were talking about, divination, oracular uh, types of phenomena, if we want to refer to that as, as well as for the governing race of individuals, priest class, rulership class ethical rulership class they have the ability to be initiated into a form of consciousness that allows them to actually be able to not predate upon those that are subjects but to be able to guide and shepherd shepherd ethically and i think that that is one of the most important things that we are lacking today where we have traded in all spirituality for financial um, value. And now we see that the ruling class are exclusively financial and that that becomes a, a really big problem. There's no spiritual leadership in the ways that we are moving. And those that claim to be spiritual leaders these days, unfortunately, oftentimes are not. You know, it's like those who say don't know, those who know don't say. Um, but yeah, very, very fascinating stuff, Aubrey. Very, very fascinating stuff. And, and you know, I will go to, with you to Egypt because it is such a critical component. And I can tell you most of, and, and with my computer models and just with, um, you know, I'm a pretty damn good astronomer these days. I will be able to tell you exactly what star is aligned to what at what season and based on the shapes of where they're at looking at aerial views I'd be like oh yeah this this is actually corresponding to you know the Cygnus constellation or whatever you know so yes yeah it's something that I is a huge part of my work and I want to be able to bridge um understandings between cultures because i think that we were all working as ancient cultures especially and when i say ancient we're talking way pre-bronze age 
We're talking, For you sure. know, what is currently referred to as the Neolithic. The mother culture. Exactly. And we start to see that there are similarities that are so overlapping that we have to say that there is definitely a technology and understanding a cosmology of the world and how it works that if we can restore it today, let's see how it changes consciousness. You know, I'm not making any promises that it will, but I do think, and I, I have this sense of inner knowing in my heart that that is the missing component between us and the connection to everything else outside of us, the connection between the macrocosm and the microcosm here on earth. So uh, anyway, that's my own two cents. You know, Phoenix, I'm going to say something in response to what you just said that may be potentially misinterpreted by some of our listeners. And I'm just going to go for it anyway, because I feel like it's really important that like we don't edit ourselves these days and we we do our best to refine our ideas. And the only way of doing this, I mean, this is like what the golden age of Athens was all about and like debating yes. in the agoras was like it was an opportunity to refine the ideas publicly. So like we all have to shut up and mind our P's and Q's all the time and like be very <laughs> like politically correct, which is changing, you know, on a daily basis, then what's happening to the evolution of ideas how are we pushing the envelope right so i do feel through my research that there has been a system of spiritual like a spiritual caste system in the ancient cultures and that caste system has been stripped of its spiritual um yes. uh origins and been it basically now it has to do with you know wealth and finances and economic power you know and there still is very you know if we're in denial about the fact that there's a caste system on this planet then we really have our heads in the sand but the point yeah. is is like why was there a spiritual caste system there was a spiritual caste system because there were certain part of the population that were primed to be kind of like receptors of cosmic information that could then be translated and utilized for the, hopefully, the upliftment of the rest of the population. And so there is a Greek word that I love very dearly and have a very deep resonance to, and maybe we can talk about it when we're on site in Egypt. Um, <laughs> what my particular affinity to this word is, it's um, Dirkeshtai. I don't know if you've ever heard this word before. I, I don't, I haven't. It's, out, it's a Greek word and it means navigator and so there were certain orders in ancient times and i can tell you phoenix that these orders have survived into present day where there were be and it had a lot to do with certain types of blood because um according to certain uh esoteric traditions and occult traditions certain kinds of blood had more uh you could say um pre uh um, we're more prepared to in, enable that individual to expand their consciousness in certain kinds of ways. And so these spiritual castes, and they were largely priest castes in ancient times, whether we're talking about Atlantis or we're talking about Egypt, but they were individuals that it wasn't, you know, they weren't chosen through like nepotism. They were chosen based on their... Um, their how well situated they were in non-binary or non-dualistic states of consciousness and that those individuals were considered better suited and better oriented as you said i have used this term before to shepherd the populace 
toward a certain kind of directionality. So it wasn't just, do we have enough grain for the year? But it was like, where, like, where is the, where are we evolving to as a species that there were ancient, you know, the ancient mind was not as primitive as we've been inculcated to think that it was. The ancient mind was much more vastly, or, and, and here's the other thing, it wasn't everyone. It's never been everyone in no. any golden in any golden age. That's because if it was, we'd still be living it. And yeah. the reason why the golden ages of you know of times where there has been more integrated spiritual knowledge was because it fell into the you know this kind of knowledge was falling into the wrong hands, and then people were using it to gain power and manipulate the rest of the people. But it has always been that certain people were better equipped and trained and that their life was prioritized and oriented toward this kind of uh toward initiatic experience to help them to integrate how to orient the consciousness and the evolution of an entire say race or pod or collective of people I, I've talked about that pretty openly with a great deal of criticism coming from uh, many uh, about that, that very same concept, actually. And, you know, the fact is, is that the majority of individuals that are here, you know, in, in the alchemical understanding things and in the Pythagorean understanding, which is really where the Western alchemical understanding of this concept came from, was... Comes that, back to Egypt. Exactly. Study the noon. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, is that there are certain beings that are on an ascending pathway of consciousness and beings that have attained that highest sense of consciousness and are again descending into ignorance. And that there is constantly this kind of, it's like a ladder, so to speak, you know, and in various different traditions, including in the Hebrew tradition, we can refer to this as Jacob's ladder. We can refer to this as lots of different uh, types of things, depending on the culture that we're looking at, but there's ascending and descending states of consciousness. The vast majority of people are not going to be at the states of consciousness that are able to perceive the totality and multidimensionality of reality as it might objectively exist, but they can understand various aspects of subjective reality. And it just seems, you know, such a critical and missing component to our leadership today that we have distanced ourselves from the spiritual aspects that need to be in place in order to be able to guide folks. And instead, that's been co-opted. And I think part of that too, actually, Aubrey, uh, part of that may have something to do just with the alignment of the planet at various places along the procession of the equinoxes. And in fact, in India- We should unpack that, that on another bit. occasion because there's yeah. a lot to that. There is a lot to that. So at any rate, uh, yeah, coming in and coming out of various states of consciousness as individuals is one thing, but because that happens on the individual level, because of as above, so below, hermetic principle, that has to happen on a larger level coming in and out of consciousness as a planet as a whole. So I think that, you know, there, there's so much there that we could uh, focus on, but, you know, 
this is this has become a much different interview than what I initially had uh, in mind. And I know that we're running a little short on time, but we wanted to talk a little bit about magic today. We've touched on telekinesis. We've touched on, you know, oracular ship just a little bit. I know that uh, anybody who's been following you on Facebook can knows that even just this last trip that you were taking to the Sacred Valley, there were so many downloads that were coming and, you know, you were giving tiny little glimpses of this, but how does this, you know, how does this tie into magic and magical practice? How does, how does any of what we've been talking about kind of pertain to, to magic? Okay. That's, that's, I'm so, thank you for asking me that. That's like the best question I've been asked in a long time. So, because I'm excited to answer that. And so, um, in the research that I've been doing for my book, which I don't know if I've told you, I'm writing a book. It's called Per Ab, which in Kemetian, it means the temple of the heart. And it's the subtitle is the Egyptian path of inner alchemy. And so in my research for this book, Phoenix, um, I've done a lot of study about magic and I've delved into the uh, conventional Egyptologists that have written books on magic because there are a number of books that are out there. And what I have learned, you know, when I've, looked at you know all the different like you know like the thousands and thousands of like talismans that have been found in amulets and like how they would write you know spell work on papyri and then they would dissolve them and then they would drink those things and um or there would be like sippies in front of temples and then they'd like pour certain kinds of liquids over those sippies and then they'd like bathe in them or drink them for like specific purposes and being that i have this privilege to live in the amazon where magic is still alive and well and being practiced on a regular basis here by the you know indigenous populations of this area what i've realized is that you know when i've looked at the study of magic in ancient egypt i realized it's alive and well here in amazonia and what i've also realized is that this is the original mother religion magic is the mother religion mm. on the planet We've always practiced magic. All cultures practice magic and all cultures continue to practice magic today. Although we are in big denial about all of this. And again, it's like with these kind of extrasensory uh, skills and gifts where we've been taught to doubt their existence. So it's like, that's a personal choice. Like either you're going to own your gifts or you're going to just live in denial that this might be true or not be true and also kind of live in a kind of state of cognitive dissonance of your own personal experience around these things, which a lot of people do. Yes. Um, you know, most people have like uh, lucid dreams and prophetic dreams and intuitions and things that most people have had experiences like this, but they discount them because of yeah. all the conditioning that they have. And so about magic, um, you know, and the other thing too is, so this is, in my opinion, what has helped me personally to be able to penetrate into the field of Egyptology in a more experiential way, rather than from like a kind of um, clinical, academic, anthropological perspective, which for me feels like they're trying to, they're trying to talk about something from the outside, and they're never going to get to the to the heart of it, because they're, they're not they don't have the experience of that. And they you don't know, even know what they don't know. They're not even willing to accept that there's more to the picture than just an archaeological or, you know, it's, it's a very reductionist materialist way that they're trying to look at things when it wasn't like that at all. 
which we won't have unless we have those kinds of trans transcendental experiences. And so I've yeah. been very fortunate, as you know, with the work that I do here in the Amazon to have a lot of transcendental experiences. And through my training with working with ayahuasca over the last 23 years, um, what I have learned about magic and about how to conduct magic, because there's only so much one can read in books and receive through a teacher verbally about how to conduct magic. And then it's almost that the art of magic unfolds itself to the initiate. It's true. And that's gonna be something that happens on a very individual basis, according to all of our kinds of like karmas and our life experience and like the kinds of skills and gifts that we have in our apertures and what we're not open to and all of that. And so what I've learned over time, just in a nutshell about what does it mean to elicit an act of magic? Um, so for me, a lot of what I talk about, it comes from both the experiential and also like my academic research and these kinds of things. And so it has a lot to do like what you were talking about when you were like in that time period between nine and 12, and you had that experience where you felt like you could move something, but you needed to stay somewhat present to your individualistic state of consciousness so you didn't like dissolve into like a you know a puddle of like you know mass on the ground like <laughs> ectoplasmic mass on the ground you know what i mean like which is so like wise for your child mind to think these things because it, it makes a lot of sense you know so like how do you maintain enough of your like uh, egocentric or individualized sense of self but at the same time, expand that sense of self outward in every single direction, multiradially, multidimensionally. So we are what it is that we want to elicit. So it's not like the idea of like hoping and wishing and write it on a piece of paper and burden in the fire. Like, I don't necessarily think that that's like wrong or yeah. that that's not going to work. I mean, th there's so many different kinds of ritualistic activities that I perform on the daily that, you know, there's something to all of that. But truthfully, if we really want to elicit something on a big level, what I have learned through experience of working with ayahuasca over, you know, thousand plus times through the teachers that I've had in my life from mystery school traditions and lineages that date back like thousands of years, is that the act of magic it's there's there's the formal aspect of the ritual you know that has certain kinds of steps and yes. then there is the aspect of the ritual where you literally are not yourself anymore and you're entering into kind of trance realm transpersonal realm of consciousness and for example like in an ayahuasca session they talk about um concentration yeah what does it mean to concentrate it doesn't mean to overly fixate mentally on something no right. you must completely relax the mental faculties you must train yourself to completely disengage from the mental faculties which are so obsessive compulsive and grasping and that needs to be completely relaxed and there is another kind of intelligence that arises from the substratum of our consciousness that is energetic and quantum and it's that kind of intelligence that if we can become in contact with that and become more and more familiar with that and learn experientially how to work and direct that 
that things can start to happen for us and we can see really amazing effect in our life. And then there is another aspect of magic, which I think is very important. And this is something I've gotten through my study of the work of Eliphas Levy. Have you ever come in? Have you oh, come yeah, across him? Of course. Absolutely. Of course you have. Of course you have. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know his, why his... we wait so long to talk to each other. I really don't. <laughs> I know. Well, shit, we have tried, but we're both very busy individuals. It's like, it's ridiculous. But we should make time because we speak the same language and we speak multiple languages. So like, yes. it's very, it's illuminating to speak with you, I have to tell you. So Eliphas Levy talks about the four powers of the Sphinx, right? And he talks about the act of magic that when you perform the ritual and you complete it, you must disengage from that act completely meaning after you perform it there's no second guessing like yeah. i wonder if i did it properly or if it's going to work because then you take away the potency and the power of that it's literally like energetically you've wrapped it up it's a quantum like, field yeah there you go you let it have its life force and like do its thing and you do not meddle anymore with that yeah yeah absolutely i think that that is so critically important you know, it's funny um, in a way that, you know, right before this call, you're like, can we talk about magic? Because just <laughs> last night, you know, I was so ends. Paracelsus came up with five causes of disease. OK, I have added to the Paracelsian corpus. And of course, I'm, I'm pioneering a modern spagyric um, field that is rooted in Paracelsianism. But there's so much technology, so many ideas, so many other things that have happened since the time of Paracelsus and the Paracelsian physicians. We need a more modernized version. And not everybody is behind that. Of course, a lot of people like to relinquish history to history. But I am bringing it into the modern day and utilizing intrinsic data field technology. I have learned that there is definitely a cause of disease due to magic that I have come to call ens magicae, or the cause of, you know, the entity of magic, the cause of disease of magic. And so Noriana was talking to me about this and she says, well, what, what is magic to you? And I said, well, magic is basically the employment of various forces seen or unseen in order to obtain a desired result. Now, there are individuals who will browbeat their will upon, yeah, uh, upon various aspects of, of subjective reality in order to manipulate that reality for their own benefit. And people who do this exclusively out of an egotistical gain that is based in a trauma or in a wound that they will not heal, we call that dark magic. And again, because yeah. they're performing magic unconsciously, in the dark to obtain something that they feel will compensate for their whatever they lack already beautiful a lot of That's people well, feel well powerless thank you thank you mm -hmm. um, a lot of people feel very powerless and so they get attracted to the occult and learn like oh i can summon this entity that will allow me to do this thing and it gives the illusion of power, but like a drug, you have to keep coming back to it. And eventually, like a drug, you lose yourself to it. Right. Then there are also individuals that will utilize, you know, basic principles of sympathetic magical principle. And that's where like write your name or write your intention on the thing, give it to the fire, drown it in the water, bury it in the sand, you know, whatever different types of uh, uh, of types of folk traditions and other things like this. They're very sympathetic, candle magic. But again, these What do you things... mean by sympathetic? I'm sorry to interrupt you. Can you define yeah, that? Yeah, sympathetic yes. meaning that the thing that you're doing 
contains a sympathetic vibration like a tuning fork to the thing that it is that you're looking to obtain or the, the desired result. And so you know that through this ritual that can be performed, you are putting yourself in the flow of energy of whatever this desired result is. And it's just like a tuning fork that just you ring here, this rings, there you go. Again, I would consider that for most people, a gray magical practice. Some people may not necessarily be doing it out of a place of compensating for the lack of whatever quality it is that they want to have or lack of virtue development, but they're doing it just to be able to enact uh, and, and to get the thing. And it still has this kind of somewhat egotistical basis to it of, I need this thing. Like for instance, love spells. Okay. You want to find a lover, you go and grab a love candle spell. You burn the thing, you know, anointed in your oils, light the candle, and then you're able to attract a lover nine times out of 10, because you didn't actually, uh, I'll explain this in a second. Um, Somebody who wanted to do that, who was using what I would and what Paracelsus would have referred to as magia naturalis, means natural magic, is that you are understanding the energies that are already present and simply putting yourself in the flow of that. Aligning but, with that. Mm -hmm. But it oftentimes takes the development of that virtue first because virtues are what nature is constantly trying to show us. It is constantly showing us virtues, not vices. Black magic, vices. Gray magic, oftentimes vices. Natural magic, oftentimes, is this development of virtue. And what I mean by that is that... I love this. If, if I wanted to, if I wanted to, knowing what I know about magic and how I've practiced over the last, you know, 28 years or whatever, is this, that if I wanted to attract a lover, what I would do is I would develop the... the I would involutionary go in to my darkest aspects and say, what is it about me that I don't feel is lovable in the first place? And then I would find those things and then I would perform transpersonal alchemy on those things so that I could transform that darkness or that lack into the state that I want. And by doing that, it's just like the birth of a star, the involutionary dark matter that explodes into light and then gravitationally attracts things towards it, there will be people lining up if you make yourself more lovable to love you. You won't have to find love. Love will encounter you everywhere that you go, but it yeah. takes that involutionary development of that virtue of loveliness, of lovability. And that is what I would call magia naturalis, the employment of natural cycles, putting yourself into the flow of things that already exist. And you can tell the difference between states of egotistical or browbeating magic, dark magic, and what I would call magia naturalis by an energetic signature. In the Rosicrucian teachings, the very first lesson, especially in Builders of the Adidam, which is a Rosicrucian inspired thing by Paul Foster Case, in that mystery school tradition, they always teach the very first lesson that there is an abundance of happiness of health, of wealth for everybody. There's no limitation. Everybody could be charged to the brim with this and there's still going to be an abundance of that energy. These are like virtue. There's never an end to how honorable you can be. There's never an end to how 
lovable you can be. There's never an end to how much love, you know, no matter how much we love today, a deeper embrace can always be had tomorrow. True magic and this alignment, well, what I would refer to as true magic, magia naturalis, is being able to utilize our capacities as the human to align ourselves with these abundant principles that exist ad infinitum in the entire universe. And that's, that's the difference. Whereas the other things, if you're already saying, ah, I need more money, you're not operating in the concept that there's enough money or enough money for you. And people miss that fact of the self-transformational aspect that helps align them. And instead they try and say, "Absolutely, let me just use the law of attraction or whatever else. The law of attraction isn't wrong the way that it's taught, but it's not complete either in my experience. And so, yeah, anyway, Nori was asking me about that. And that, that was a summarization of my answer last night. Phoenix, that's really very well articulated. And I would absolutely agree with that. I think for me, the most powerful experiences I've ever had with magic have been where I became that which I sought to attain because the seeking part ceased to be. Yeah, yes, precisely. Yeah. So that's, and it sounds so simple. It was easy to say that, but to actually do that. Yes. When we're working on a quantum level, it really is that easy to do that. But the thing is, we really need to train every day to move beyond the limitations of the mind. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And to allow the spirit and the soul to soar unfettered. And that that takes an integration of those two principles into the body that takes a death of who you think you are and what you think you want. And, you know, it's like there's so many aspects to it. And of course, you know, in, in a lot of my classes, I've kind of elaborated on that. I, I taught transpersonal alchemy for 14 years or something like that, because I felt that that was such a critical component. Now I'm finding that I should probably still be teaching that <laughs> that work because uh, it doesn't get old. It's it's a very perennial concept. But anyway, magic. Aubrey, we are running closely, closely, closely to the border of our time limit here on my clock i'm showing that we have like three or four minutes what i would like to do is invite you back of, uh, again of course uh we'll have another yeah, couple pleasure. of minutes. i would love to have you back i didn't even get i have a list of questions sitting here i didn't even ask one of them so <laughs> um <laughs> literally this has been a, a, the most amazing and awesome conversation uh that i've had in a long time it always is anytime i chat with you but i want Likewise. you to let people know about where they can find you how they can find out what you're up to what the best ways of, of getting in touch with you are if that's even a possibility these days and what uh you know what's next for you on what's what's next on the horizon Thank you, Phoenix. I, honestly, it would be such a, a delight to come back and speak more. I would love that. This has been so um, enriching and it's just been an absolute erudite conversation. So that would be my pleasure. Let me know when you're available. I'm there. Um, thank you for the invitation to share. So I didn't mention this. So I do have a new project that I, is in the works. And so I've been working on a uh, holistic luxury travel startup for the last year. And basically what this project is, is it's a framework to be able to um, essentially simulate and concretize 
the essence of a transformational experience and the healing, the quant, the quantum uh, potentiality of ex of of experience of truly transformational experience. So I've had I've been so blessed with an abundance of these kinds of experiences in my life all over the world, um, in all kinds of contexts. And I've realized that they have not just like enriched my life, but they've made me who I am and made me access the life that I that I've been able to create for myself. And so it's something that I really want to be able to offer to people. So we are currently in the process of um, customizing experiences in three different places. All three of these places are near and dear to my heart. It's Egypt, of course, Peru, of course, and Tanzania. And the name of the project is called ArgosDestinations.com. So people can check us out over there. Um, we're just getting ready to launch in 2024. And um, the other way that would be really interesting to connect with people would be through, um, I'm planning to offer probably the last iteration of the Alchemic Mystery Field School, either in late April or early May 2024. I will... Um, be completing work on my book and so i'll be really like juiced and ready to transmit a bit of what the egyptian path of inner alchemy is and so as a teacher of transpersonal alchemy i mean this is something i think we probably could really like diverge on and just run with you and i is this topic so um yeah so anyway egypt April, May 2024. If people are interested, they can contact us at mysteryfieldschool.com and find out more or argosdestinations.com. And thank you. I really do look forward to coming back and, and unpacking more because this is um, these are areas, the occult and esoteric areas of um, information and knowledge is something that is is probably not just a vocation, but it's what um, it's part of why I feel like I'm here, you know, and, you know, everything else in my life kind of emanates from that orientation. So that would be my pleasure to chat more with you about this. So cool. Well, as always, Aubrey, thank you so much for your time. It's thank you, Phoenix. like you said, it's so enriching. And so, yeah, there's few people on this planet that I find to be as awesome as you. I just have the the deepest well of respect for you. It's more of an underground mutual. that absolutely bubbles up. So thank you so much. Please send thank my you. regards to Noriana. We'll do. We'll do. We love you so much, and we'll be in touch soon. For all of you listeners, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as Aubrey and I obviously enjoyed having it. If you want to see more of Aubrey, if you have more questions, I mean, she's an Ayurvedic practitioner. She's uh, initiated into the vegetalista tradition. I mean, she's worked with crystals and herbs and I got everything else that you can imagine in between. Tons of magical knowledge, of course, her understanding and intrinsic knowledge about Egypt just goes deeper than most people could ever imagine. And we hardly even scraped upon, I mentioned it, but her sacred motherhood blueprint is stuff that, in my opinion, if you feel called to taking the highest route of motherhood, or a let's just say a high, very high route of uh, motherhood pathway, and want to be able to work with your child, I mean, I have literally known Aubrey since the time that she was about to give birth and been able to see the development of her child, who is just absolutely extraordinarily bright and uh you guys homeschool her you i mean 
it's it's just kind of mind boggling and i don't want to place all this emphasis on the hall uh either because it, that could just go straight straight to her head i suppose but um it's just amazing to see how you have cultivated this the dedication that you have with your child and simultaneously how much has been incorporated and poured into these businesses it is just such an extraordinary example of what is possible when you take this what I would refer to as the high road and the sacred sacred motherhood uh, blueprint is a very integral part of that in my opinion so you can visit that out we will include links to everything down in the description below and again thank you guys as listeners for joining in if you like this podcast please share it and uh you know give it out to your friends and uh comment let us know what you think and what else we should talk about in future episodes with Aubrey so until next time friends thank you very much Keep well, and I extend my blessings of happiness and health to you all. Thank you, Phoenix.